the media. I suppose our youngsters would say cornball or square. And now, CBN Radio brings you... All the broadcast uh, uh, media can do. Give them a sense of flavor. It's all vegetable. It's digestible. It's delicious and nutritious. Life-size and ready to eat. It's made with real egg formula. And here's a nice-looking record package in from New York. I woke up this morning with WCBN. America's ace of the airways. With this instrument is good for nothing but to entertain, amuse, and insulate. And we will soon see that the whole struggle is lost. And believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia special. <laughs> WCBN FM Ann Arbor BN FM WCBN FM WCBN FM Ann Arbor WCBN FM Ann Arbor WCBN Ann Arbor A very pleasant, peaceful feeling. You relax deeper and deeper each downward count of my voice ten. Relaxing deeper, nine, letting the body gently begin to sink deeper, eight. Eight point three. Yes, it's like a push-button radio, you see. Twenty-four hours a day. Whether you like it or not. Oh, we're limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that limit. Listening to WCBN FM in Arbor. This is Living Writers, and my name is Molly. Today we will be listening to an interview that Sarah Stedman, my co host, and I did with Megan McCafferty a few months ago for a different show. Megan McCafferty is the author of Sloppy First, Second Helpings, and Charmed Thirds, which follow the adventures of Jessica Not So Darling, a New Jersey teenager as she makes her way through high school and college. Hopefully, you will enjoy the interview, and thank you for listening.
You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. My name is Molly. I'm here with Sarah, and we are talking to Megan McCafferty, author of Sloppy Firsts, Second Helpings, and her new book, Charmed Thirds. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? We're doing pretty good. All right. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thank you. We're very excited. Um, so you want to go ahead and get started, Sarah? Yeah. So I was wondering who you feel... Just go. Who you think of when you're writing? Because I believe that when I initially like picked up um, Sloppy First, it was in the young adult section, mm-hmm. and now they seem to all have migrated over towards the you know adult fiction mm-hmm. chiclet section. Well, I was really selfish in writing this book because I wrote the type of book that I wanted to read. Uh, I started writing the book when I was 26, and I don't know if it. I was in a state of arrested development or whatever that I just love teen angst. I love comic coming-of-age stories. And even though there are a lot of funny, beautifully written books in that genre, I just felt that there weren't any that really reflected my high school reality. And so I thought, instead of complaining, then I could try and write the type of book that I enjoy reading. And I hope that if I wrote it intelligently enough and with enough humor and heart and with characters that people cared about that it would resonate with anyone at anyone at any age who also loves teen angst and it's funny that you mentioned that it was shelved in YA because I'm not technically a young adult writer at all I specifically went with a publisher that doesn't publish young adult novels Uh, crown only publishes like quote-unquote adults books that always sounds like it's porn but um (laughs) but it only with books that you know that are the general fiction audience and the reason i did that is because i was afraid that if it was shelved in ya that it wouldn't reach that older audience that i thought could also appreciate it in relation to that you have worked at both um sort of adult and um teenage women's magazines such as cosmo 17 ym etc um, and we were just wondering how your experiences at those magazines informed your current projects and whether you feel like your experience at one or the other might have um, helped you out a little bit more in putting together your novels. Well, working at YM definitely gave me insight inside the mind of a teenage girl, especially because I, I was when I worked at YM, I was the lowest of the low on the masthead. I was the assistant to the editor-in-chief and, like, 90% of my duties were administrative, like literally getting tea and fig newtons for my boss. A wonderful boss, I have to say, because she promoted me many times and was very great to me throughout my career. But initially, I was pretty much a glorified secretary. And, but one of the cool jobs that I had there was I was in charge of all the reader mail. So I read... Not all of the mail that came in, because at the time, this is like pre, this is just on the cusp of like email. So like it was literally letters. And I read hundreds of letters every week. And through those letters, I found out exactly what teen girls loved and hated about everything, about pop culture, about fashion, about makeup, about, you know, just everything. And I I really held on to a lot of that as I was writing the first two books. Um... And just in general about my work in magazines, I it taught me to, to make every word count. It taught me how to write on a deadline. Uh, my my editors, editors have told me that I, my writing is very clean and, and it, my work doesn't really require a lot of heady, heavy editing. But the downside to writing in magazine, for magazines is that I had almost no creative control. Um, my writer's voice was always sacrificed for the tone of the magazine, 
And I had to write about whatever subjects my top editors told me to write, whether it was about prom fashions or orgasms. You know, like I, I, I had no choice. I could really not say no. Mm-hmm. And um, I got tired of doing that. And that was a big reason why I left the magazine industry to write fiction is because I wanted to have the freedom to be able to write what I wanted to write. And I have never regretted my decision. <laughs> so it sounds like maybe some of the... Um, sections in your new book about the magazine True, where Jessica Darling gets an internship, are a little bit based on your experiences. Then I think based on just thinking that, you know, thinking that something's going to be the end all, be all, and then working there and realizing it's not. And I think that can be true of any career that you have your set your sights set on. But yes, specifically, yeah, I, I, there. I think a lot of people think that the magazine industry is so glamorous, or in Jessica's case, she just thinks they're going to be so cool. You know, the writing is so cool, so it must be so much fun to work there. And, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's really just a job. So, um, yeah, I, I did use uh, some of my disillusionment in magazines in, in this book about Jessica's own disappointment in, in working for True. And talking about Jessica, it, all of your books, and I think the story in 16 also, are just about Jessica Darling, just that pretty much that one character, and it's all through her eyes and focused very much on her experience. Um, do you ever think about writing about other characters or thinking about Jessica as sort of a meaningful presence in your life? I, I did try and write another book. <laughs> um, in between, when I finished Second Helpings, um, it was, a very, it was, it was um, a very important time in my life. I found out that I was pregnant uh, with about two chapters left to write in Second Helpings. So my last two chapters, I was, like, falling asleep all the time and then having morning sickness and stuff. But um, I finished the book, and I, I decided to take a break. I figured this was a good time to kind of, like, reevaluate my life and what I, what I wanted the next step to be. So I didn't, I didn't know, assume there was going to be a third Jessica Darling book. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I was just going to pop out this kid. Um, and I did. And after I did, uh, I was very eager to get back to work. I felt like I needed to start working on my next project, I think, to prove to myself that I still had a career. I think I was worried that if I didn't start writing again, that I would never start writing again and, and my career would be over or something. I don't know. So I started. I forced myself to start writing on this other book that that is mentioned on the, the back of Second Helpings, this book about a singer in a wedding band. And I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I knew exactly what this book was going to be about. It was going to be about the 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 myths in our culture that you know that if you work hard enough and dream big enough you can be famous you know and just like our lust for that type of uh, like hollywood level celebrity and uh, i don't know that's what i thought this book was going to be about well long story short i wrote 60 pages of this book and it sucked really it was it was not good and i realized that it wasn't good because um I didn't care about the character enough. I, I, it wasn't enough to sustain a whole novel. I ended up turning it into a short story for um, an anthology, a short story that I think is a very good short story, but the character just didn't have enough to sustain a novel. And so to just quickly answer your question, the reason why I, I, I'm still writing about Jessica Darling and will continue to write about her in a fourth book is because right now she's the character that I feel like She's, I, I just, she calls to me, like I literally, I had a dream telling me that I should write this third book. Like I woke up and I woke up knowing exactly what the title was going to be and how it was going to be structured. And I feel like 
for my subconscious to know that deeply that I should be writing about her, that I feel like I should listen. And I had the same kind of epiphany with this fourth book. Again, I didn't assume there was going to be a fourth book. And I only decided to do it when I was at the end of writing Charm Thirds, and I still kept up on coming up with ideas for all these characters that I, that I wanted to, like, cram in to the end of the book, and I realized at some point I had to stop. So she is very meaningful to me. I feel like sometimes it gets a little weird. I start, I, there, are, there are times where I've had dreams about Marcus Flutie. You know, I start having, I'm having dreams about Marcus Flutie. It gets, it's like, okay, this is starting to get a little strange now. Um, and and I, she's very dear to me, and so um, it means a lot to me when um, people say that they, for as much as she means to readers, I mean, just imagine what she can mean to me. I mean, I, I, she's like, I don't know. It's hard to even explain. It's a very strange relationship <laughs> I have with her. But I do have been writing some other things. I've been writing essays for, for various anthologies, and I, and I like those opportunities because they do allow me, the, they allow me the chance to kind of break out of her head for a while because, let me tell you, it gets a little crazy in there for long periods of time. Yeah, I'm probably assure you that you're not the only one that's dreaming about Marcus Flutie. I don't. I don't, but I bet someone is. <laughs> Has to be. So your books clearly are like driven by Jessica's character much more than anything that specifically happens to her. Um, is this like a choice that you've made just in general, like, is that something that you look for in books? Yeah, definitely. I I I like character-driven books. I don't like I, I don't like it when I feel like I can see the plot outline when I'm reading a novel. Um, I, I think character drives plot, and when I'm writing, I, I try and get inside every character's head, and I mean every character, every minor character. You know, I I really try and figure out what makes them act. The way they act, I, I, I've told. I feel like it's almost like method acting. Like I really try and place myself inside their heads, which also gets weird. But um, and I think and, and and what I love about that is that as I'm writing, I get surprised sometimes by what happens. Like I, there have been times where I'm writing a scene and all of a sudden a character will will enter the scene and I'm not even sure why. And I'm just like, all right, why is Amanda here right now? Why is she here? Like, what is she doing here? And I know it sounds strange. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's just sometimes it's very intuitive and I'm not even sure why it's why whatever impulse is taking over is taking over until I kind of just go with the moment and I let the scene unfold. And for me... It's it's really exciting and it keeps the writing interesting and it keeps me interested in the book. And uh, I don't know why my mind works that way. I, I can't explain it. I'm very I feel like I, I do a very bad job at explaining my process, but it's how it works for me. It's kind of hilarious to think about it that way, especially with like the characters Amanda and Sarah in mind. <laughs> of, of course, it would be like. What are they doing here? <laughs> like, okay, you know, she's here. She's going to annoy Jessica. Yeah. Why? Like, <laughs> it, just, it just makes sense now. And what would be what would be the per- well, you know? And then, but, but I do think I'm like, okay, what, what would be the purpose of her interacting with Manda at this point in the yeah. story? Why? Like, why would Manda be there? And what would be you know? I really. 
I, I think I, I, I wasn't a psychology major in college, and I wish I had been. I love psychology. I'm like an amateur, you know, psychologist. I, my, I, I took psychology classes, and I, my psychology textbook from college is, I think, only one of two books I have from college. And I just love, I just, I love that approach to characters and just really thinking about what makes them do all the crazy things that they do.
You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Living Writers. My name is Molly, and I am here with my co-host Sarah Stedman. Um, yeah. She says, "Yo." Um, we are listening today to an interview the two of us did with Megan McCafferty a few months ago. She's the author of Sloppy Firsts, Second Helpings, and Charmed Thirds. Thanks for listening, and you can also check us out on the web at wcbn.org. We also have, also, excuse me, have a podcast in iTunes. If you search under podcasts for living writers, you'll find our show. It's free. Um, you should also tune in next week because we'll be doing an interview with Frank Portman, author of King Dork and member of Mr. T Experience um, for that show in the week after for Victor Navasky, who was the editor at The Nation for some years. But back to Megan McCafferty for now, and thank you for listening. You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM in Arbor. We're here with um, Megan McCafferty, author of Charm Thirds. I'm asking a question now. Yes, you um, are. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that Jessica sees things like, pretty clearly, like how they are, or do you, um, I guess, intentionally skew her viewpoint in any way? Like, well, well, I wouldn't. I, well, I wouldn't say I intentionally skew her appointment, her viewpoint. I mean, her viewpoint is inherently skewed. I mean, yeah. every narrator is unreliable, unre- and I would say that Jessica is particularly an unreliable narrator because of her age and because of her cynical temperament. So, yes, everything in her book comes from her perspective. But if you asked any one of the other characters in the book their take on the same events, they would see it in a completely different way. And maybe that will be like the second phase of my career. (laughs) Maybe writing the same book from another character's perspective would be an interesting writing exercise. And the Marcus Flutie series. Yeah, yeah. Well, I... I, uh, I, well, I'm always afraid to speak too soon, but I think that there's in in this next book definitely there's there's going to be more from his direct point of view, um, and that is something that is is exciting me because I'm going to be writing from his voice in a way that I I've, that I haven't before, and it's it's going to be a challenge, definite challenge, because it's not going to sound like at all like Jessica, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do that. <laughs> do you think your readers might be? I might have specific ideas about maybe what is going on in Marcus Flutie's mind, and you'll get a lot of feedback on that. I do, I do, and and the thing is, I I, I really had no no idea that fans would. Or I, I even hate. I'm sorry. I hate saying the word fan. It freaks me out when I say that about my readers. But when when the, the, I say fans, because the people are really passionate about my books. Um, just how intense they would, intensely they would feel towards Mac, Marcus Flutie. Like, I just had no idea I was creating this. Ah, you know, I, Enigma. <laughs> like they, they just really um, go crazy for him, and it, the, there is a risk of, um, of I guess, shattering their image of him. But that's, and there is a risk, and definitely that that comes into play in Charmed Thirds, and that's something that I that I knew that I was going to have to deal with the consequences of maybe um, shattering that mythology, the Marcus mythology, a little bit for these readers who are just so in love with him. But as a writer, I can't I can't write to please everyone or anyone. I can't. I have to write the story that I feel like needs to be written. And I mean, I certainly want my fans to be happy with my book, but if but I can't, I can't make decisions based on, oh, this is gonna upset them, because I feel like <laughs> I feel like there is, you know, once it, it happens, I can see it with authors that 
do reach a certain level of popularity and like you know the books become very it's the same book over and over and over again because while it worked before i don't want to disappoint i'm going to write the same book again and you know it might be safer for me to take my approach my career in that way but that's not the type of career that i want to have i i want to write a book that challenges myself and maybe challenges the readers a little bit and i just have to hope that my readers will have faith in me and, and, and understand the story and, and have it connect with them and, and will, you know, go with me. <laughs> they'll, they'll just go with me and go with it, and it'll all work out. So um, you make a lot of, like, pop cultural references about, like, the um, specific time frame that Jessica is experiencing things and having, you know, attended college and high school almost the exact same years as Jessica Darling, like, I feel um, that a lot of them are, like, dead-on observations. Do you, like, are you very invested in, like, teen pop culture, or do you uh, do a lot of interviews to research those things? Like, I do a lot. Well, for Sloppy First and Second Helpings, I had the benefit of my mom was uh, a teacher at the, at the school, the high school I graduated from. So I could sit in on her classes and just watch them, just watch them go. Very high (laughs) of you. And I, they would just, and they would just, I could learn more about teen, you know, what it's like to be a Jersey Shore teen in like five minutes than I could from like researching for, you know, months. You know, it really was just observation and, um, and I eavesdrop all the time. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, when I'm at the mall or wherever I am, I eavesdrop on teenagers. And for this book, I was fortunate enough, I moved to a college town. I moved to Princeton in the middle of writing Charmed Thirds. And that move helped me enormously because I felt like I was doing research every time I was walking out my front door. So a lot of it is just um, me being a spy and also, I, I do, I'm not as um, invested in pop, in pop culture as a lot of people assume that I am. I mean, I don't actually, I don't even have, um, I don't have TV. Like, I don't even, I have a TV, but it's not hooked up at all. We just watch videos, which my friends, like, can't, and DVDs, videos. I feel like, oh, God, I just dated myself. Um, but we, my friends can't believe it because I know, like, all about, like, the OC, and I know all about... Laguna Beach, like, I can't even tell you, but I've never watched a single episode, you know? Well, I actually watched the OC first season, and I stopped watching it, but... It's kind of a good choice. Yeah, I know, that's right, (laughs) see? And, um, but the point is, I I guess I I do, um, I feel like I, I I do most of my research just day-to-day, just kind of walking around and paying close attention to what's going on around me. Yeah, um, there's also a huge presence of 80s culture in your books, um, and also, of course, in teenagers' lives, I think Sarah and I can agree. Yeah. Um, do you think that's sort of your high school experience sneaking in, or is that something you get during your secret spy sessions? Or well, it's funny. It started out. It's it started out as a way of representing Jessica's alienation from her own generation. That was the purpose at the beginning. Like she doesn't like any of the contemporary stuff that's out there she she identifies more with the 80s stuff and then i was i felt like a good way to tie that in or make that plausible like well again like thinking like well why would she love 80s stuff what would make somebody love 80s stuff and that's why 
that's part of the reason that, that Bethany is so much older than her. And I saw that as kind of being their only link because they're so different. So I figured that the 80s pop culture shift could be the only thing that they have in common. And, and kind of, um, I'm not even, well, Jessica, I think, says at one point that she used, at one point she did admire her older sister. And I think the fact that she loves 80s stuff, I, I, the way I see it is that, you know, I think there was a time where Jessica really kind of worshipped her sister in a way that she can't even admit in her journal. So this is all, like, going through my head as to why she would like 80s pop culture. Um, and also, and, the, and also, I I think um, I think that that stuff, the movies from the, the '80s, um, is are better than what's out there now. So it's kind of a selfish thing too. But then the strange thing is, it was like when I started writing, writing this book, like in '99, 2000, I I kind of was ahead of the curve in that by the time my book came out, this just exactly what you said. Like it seems like this generation really started to develop a love for 80s stuff, you know, which isn't that strange because when I was in high school, I was in high school in the late or 80s, early 90s, we were obsessed with the 60s and 70s. It's like every generation looks back, you know, a decade or two for, because, you know, what's going around us is so boring or whatever. So, um... It was, it was common, it was, it was weird that it turned out that, you know, this thing that I picked to be, um something that made Jessica different from her peers ultimately turned out to be like the stuff that her peers are into anyway. Yeah. Um, and not just in high school, but also in college that continues, but she seems to get into a few more new things and you're writing about in charm thirds, her college experience, mm-hmm. but um, much of the actual action is focusing on her visits home or her breaks. Right. And we were wondering why you decided to structure it that way, how you think her new experiences in college manifest themselves, and whether looking back on maybe your college experience, it seems like that was what was most important as opposed to all the you know shifts in friends and right. well, interest at school. Yeah, I, I know that this new structure has been... Um, somewhat controversial <laughs> among my my readership i mean um i know some some people have said that it was just too much it was too much for one book or that that more of the action should have taken place during the school year and i i really i, I i'm really happy i this is the way that i wanted to tell the story and the reason why i chose to do it this way is because first of all i felt like the day in and day out of college life, I thought it would just get monotonous. I, I, and I thought that um, I wanted to cover a longer period of time because I really wanted to show a major change in Jessica, like many changes, actually, in Jessica. I wanted to show that that identity shifting and experimentation and confusion and all that stuff. And I felt like it, that all of that would be too much for one year of time. But I thought that the book would be way sprawling and out of control if I tried to do three years, you know, day, day in, day out, three years. Um, so I thought, well, I could cover three years by doing the breaks, which made sense to me for two reasons. Um, the first which being, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but... I wouldn't have all the time in the world to write hundreds of pages in my journal during the academic year. <laughs> so it's like, it's for practical reasons, I don't think Jessica would have time for this, you know, obsessive contemplation. And furthermore, I know I didn't realize how much I had changed at school until I went back home. 
because it was like when I went back home, it was like I was confronted with my past again. And, you know, and the expectations that people from my past had of me, you know, it's like they, they still, a lot of people still expected me to be the same person I was when I left for school and, and didn't see all the things that had happened to me to make me the different person I was when I got back. And I felt like that was just far more apparent, that especially that first summer that I came home from freshman year of college. Just, and uh, so that's why I thought it was the obvious place to start this novel.
You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM in Arbor. We're here with um, Megan McCafferty, author of Charmed Thirds. So from what I know from your book jacket, um, your experience is from is like being from New Jersey and going to Columbia. Do other like experiences that Jessica has mirror your life? Well, it, it actually, um, my own, I, I've drawn less and less on my own personal experiences with every book um, and more in my imagination. And I think that that's because I'm getting more confident. So Jessica's college experience is actually not very much at all like mine. I actually transferred to Columbia in my junior year after attending a, a school that could not have been more different from Columbia, I think. And so I had two very, I had two very distinct radically different college experiences and so in that way i mean our our it's we're not the same at all um but what is the same is that i i felt um i was i look back on that time and i in that four years i feel like i tried out so many different personas and it's not like a conscious decision like oh now i'm theater girl you know or like dexy you know it's not as like calculated as the girl dexy in the book who like literally puts on costumes like for class but but you know i definitely um experimented with who i was and you know or tried to figure out who i was through trial and error and a lot of that had to do with the friends that i was surrounded by at the time you know some of them were good influences on me and some of them were bad influences on me and that's that's something that i wanted to articulate in this book that for me anyway college i think is the time where we really um experiment with who we are and you know a lot of times you know you're surrounded by all different people you know, you're out of your high school hometown bubble and you're surrounded by all different people and you're learning all different things and it's like the ideal time to take what you can from people and learn from people and help that knowledge, you know, form who you are. And um, that's something that I just, I, I wanted to, I wanted to, Jessica to experience herself. Um, do you feel like, Speaking about college experiences mm-hmm. and looking at Charm Thirds, it seems like her college experience is very, very stressed out, working all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like the way she presents herself and her time in the novel it, is different than you would imagine her actually acting? Like, it seems like she has one good friend or two that she would have more acquaintances that she's just not writing about? Or? I, I agree. I definitely think so. I mean, I, I look at my own journals from that time. Or any time, actually. And they're, and they're just, they're not a full, they're not a fair representation of what my whole life looked like. And I don't know if either one of you keep journals, but it seems like, you know, I, if you were re- to read my journals, you would think I had, like, no, not, no friends <laughs> at all. Cause I did, or one friend. Cause, or sometimes I went, like, whole notebooks without mentioning somebody that I saw every single day. Um, you know, I feel that, and I, and I definitely feel like that's going on with Jessica. I'm sure there are lots of people in her life that she just doesn't talk about. She talks about the ones that, for whatever reason, are having more of a profound impact at the time. And, um, you know, because it's not, I mean, and 
I think that's true to, I know they're true the way that I wrote in my journals back then, but, you know, as a novelist, like, you can't possibly, you know, cover every single person, you know, oh, that guy in class, and then the great, it's like you have to pick and choose, and each character, I mean, I feel like every character has to mean something, you know, otherwise they don't belong in the book, like, there's no room for superfluous characters, and to mention all the people that Jessica hangs out with, if they're just kind of this anonymous mob of people, it just it just didn't make sense. So that's why I kind of I use like the winter of our discontent scene where she is hanging around with a group of people. I figured like that would that would be a way of showing you know hey Jessica is capable of making friends. Have faith that she's making that she's doing this at you know other times of the year and other parts of the book that you aren't getting to see. And I was hope that that readers could take that leap of faith and not have to. You know, just because it's not there doesn't mean that she's not going through it. It's just not something that she's documenting in her journal. So now we're coming to the personal preference part of the interview. Okay. And um, having read 16 and um, recognizing a lot of the authors in it, I was wondering how you selected those authors, if you selected those authors, I guess. I did. I had... um, I had total control over who was in the book, and uh, I I wanted to have a diverse range of authors who wrote in different styles and from different points of view, and I, I just I just thought it would be interesting. I think anthologies fall flat when it feels like every single story is in the same tone and just sounds the same. I, I wanted. And I thought, in its own way, every story could stand out if I chose the authors well. So I, I, I only chose authors who work that I like or admire in one way or another. And and I wanted to get, you know, well-known authors, not so well-known authors. I was hoping that maybe I could introduce readers to new authors that way. So it was really, it was actually the, um, it was sort of the bridge project between Second Helpings and Charmed Thirds. It was like my get back to work project and it was really because uh, I wasn't ready to write a book as my horrible wedding band <laughs> book uh, had proved to me so by writing working with these other authors and writing the story that I wrote for that book it got me back into it, it started getting me excited about writing again especially when some of the stories just I was I mean I think all the stories are good but there are some stories that I got them and I was so proud to have been part of the pro like for being the impetus for that story being created, I just was like very happy that if I hadn't come up with this anthology, maybe that story wouldn't have been written. Um, so uh, it was sort of um, it was really a, a pleasure for me, and I got to get to meet authors and and become friendly with authors that I whose work I admired, and I'm still friends with them now. And it's finally, if you were to. Uh play a guest DJ set here on WCBN, um, what songs do you think you would choose? Oh, God. If I were, like, probably, like, the ratings would just plummet. Like, <laughs> my, 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 I love, like, I love iTunes so much because it just, it just embraces randomness, you know? Like, it just, I have, my, my playlist right now is, like, I have Tone Loke and Fiona Apple. I mean, it's, it all depends on my mood, and... Uh, I mean, music is definitely a big part of, uh, I have to listen to music all the time as I'm writing, and um, I've been, 
I and I find that the music that I'm listening to affects my work and vice versa. So um, I don't know what I would play for your readers, but I mean, for for me, like I love like for this book, I listen to a lot of the Smiths and the Police, and and then like I also like Bob Moulds and and uh, Fiona Apple and that and music that I feel like that has a lot of um, uh, a lot of emotion to it. There's a lot of I wasn't listening to a lot of lighthearted stuff as I was read, as I was writing this book. Thank you very much. Um, you're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. We've been here with Megan McCathity, author of the new book Charm Thirds. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it was great to talk to you. Thank you. You're listening to Living Writers. We've been talking to, you know, in the past, we've been listening to ourselves talk to, rather, Megan McCafferty, author of Sloppy Firsts, Second Helpings, and Charmed Thirds. My name is Molly. My co-host is Sarah. Yo. Oh, that's all, that's all I'm to saying say today. today. <laughs> I don't know. It's one and of those days. This is, of course, WCBN 88.3 FM in Ann Arbor. You can check us out and listen live on the web at WCBN.org. Or you can go to our podcast by searching in iTunes under Podcasts for Living Writers. Subscribe and listen to all of the wonderful interviews and not-so-wonderful interviews. Or you can give us a call and ask us which ones you should listen to. Yeah. We might tell you. We might might play with your mind and tell you the wrong ones. So next week, we'll be talking to Frank Portman, author of King Dork and member of Mr. T Experience. So tune in for that. And thank you for listening to WCBN. Free Speech Radio News is next. Good times for a change. See the luck I've had can make a good man turn bad. So please, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me get what I want. This time Haven't had a dream In a long time See the life I've had Can make a good man Bad So For once in my life Let me Get what I want Lord knows It would be the first time Lord knows It would be the first time WCBN-FM Ann Arbor exists 
to provide you, the listener, with unique freeform radio that is as diverse, educational, and entertaining as possible. We welcome listener feedback by email to programming at wcbn.org or on voicemail by telephone at 734-763-3535. I mean, that's so cool. So it's an oral test? Yeah, you just put it here between your cheek and your gums. Like this? Mm, Yeah, that's right. Now rub it back and forth a couple times. Okay, I I can do this. Pretty easy, really. Ah, perfect. Now just hold it there for two minutes. Mm. Yeah, that's right, just like that. Mm, It tastes kind of salty. This this is easier than I expected. Learning your HIV status is now easier than ever. Free anonymous HIV testing is available at HEART, the HIV AIDS Resource Center. We use Orasure, which means there are no needles. Plus, the test is free and completely anonymous. You don't even need an appointment. Just stop by the HEART Testing Clinic in Ypsilanti at 3075 Clark Road, Suite 203, near the intersection of Clark and Gulfside. Testing hours are Tuesday and Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m., and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For more information, call HARC, toll-free at 1-866-HIV-TEST. Wednesday, July 12, 2006, this is Free Speech Radio News. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. Israel launches a massive attack against Lebanon after the capture of two soldiers. We'll hear the latest from Beirut. As Mumbai's residents attempt to go back to normal life, the search continues for those responsible for the deadly blasts. And Donald Rumsfeld travels to Iraq as that country's parliament prepares to vote on a timetable for withdrawal. Those stories, plus the continuing immigration debate and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. At least five Indian tourists have been injured in a grenade attack on a resort in Indian-administered Kashmir. Shanawas Khan has more. The attack comes after five serial blasts killed eight people yesterday in Kashmir's summer capital, Srinagar. Seven of the dead were tourists. Police say that in today's attack, suspected guerrillas hurled a grenade at a group of tourists while they were boarding a bus in the Gulmarg Tourist Resort. One of the injured is in critical condition. More than six attacks have targeted tourists in Kashmir this summer, a major shift in the 17-year-old anti-India insurgency in Kashmir. Kashmir's biggest